Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Collider Ladies Night. I'm very excited to be able to talk to one of my favorite actors out there, but also this incredible show that is making my head spin right now. It's Imogen Poots for Outer Range. Hello. Oh my God, you're so good in this show. Thank you. It's, um, yeah, it's certainly a strange one, which is why we all wanted to do it. So that's good. Yeah, I mean, that's that's putting it lightly. I won't do any of this just yet, but later on we will get into spoilers because you do some stuff in like the latter half of this series that is just like, it's, it's truly like jaw-dropping work. And I hope you are very proud. Thank you. Yeah, she's a very busy character. Very much so. <laughs> all right, so first order of business on Ladies Night is we play dicey questions. I've got a dice tower behind me and you get three rolls on the tower and whatever numbers you roll, those are the questions we start with. Oh, wow. Okay, great. All right. So your fate is in my hand right now. We're starting with a number eight. Oh, you got a nice light one to start with here. Do you have any pets? No, I have no pets. Although um, I did have pet rats growing up. So um, they were called fancy rats. And they were not the kind of rats you'd find on the street in New York City. I mean, they probably were. I don't really know where exactly they were from, but um, they were called Finn and Piccadilly. And they sort of had these large, large bottoms, long tails, and we kept them in our house. I feel like rats get bad reputations. I was literally just reading something on how rats are actually like really kind and sweet pets to have. And now yeah. I want a rat. Yeah, I think we had a good time. Had to listen to Spice Girls a lot and, you know. <laughs> It was around that time, but um, yeah, we had rats, so kind of niche, but I think it sets you up to then live in New York, probably. That's, I mean, that's fair enough. That is very true. All right, roll number two now. Okay. Well, it's a six and it fell on the floor. Whoa, we wow. got wrap gift. What is the most memorable wrap gift you've ever received? Oh my goodness. Um, the one that immediately comes to mind when I was 
17, Rosie Byrne, the wonderful actress, gave me a book, a David Mamet book. So that was cool. And I'd never read him before. And she gave me, and there was a book with like a handwritten note in the front. And that's really cool. Um, but then I also, this year actually got from the show, um, somebody gave me a first edition of Joan Didion's Democracy, which would now probably be like even more special, you know, so it's quite You get some really cool, thoughtful rap gifts. I feel like most of the answers that I get are, you know, like, I don't know, t-shirts with like inside jokes from the show or something. Those are great. Yeah, they're always those. And then you're kind of like, well, those are going to go in the drawer, but yeah. (laughs) All right. I got one more roll for you now. All right. We're wrapping this up with a number one. Number one is high-low. Can you give us one audition high and then one audition low and tell us what you learned from that low? Oh, God. Yeah. Um, What would an audition high be? The lows just really come in with such velocity, but the highs are difficult to remember. Um, I do remember an audition where I had to um, sing and it was just a slow car crash. Something happens when you receive a role that you're going to go in for where you sort of convince yourself that you you might be able to do anything. Um, But it was like a musical theatre part. Like there are actresses out there who would have trained in order to do this kind of thing but I just sort of winged it and I turned up and there was a pianist in the room as well so that's sort of a very professional and I just launched in to my song and it was so bad I I, um, started crying and carried on singing just with tears streaming down my face and then I just got out of there and I didn't it was something out of like a, a romantic comedy I mean with no romance it was just a very dark moment. I mean, it sounds to me like you showed off a lot of range in that audition. So yes. anyone in that room should have been impressed. <laughs> I think they were just like shocked. Haven't seen them since, but you know. Um, so that was the worst. And then in terms of, oh God, is there ever a good audition? Um, I'll say that it was less of an audition, but more of um, like a general talk with this director, Derek C on France. And we... Uh, spoke for a very long time about the character as if she was like a real person sitting there in the room with us. And I remember that being like one of the coolest entry points into like a project ever. But I still didn't know if like I was, if I had the role or not. So you're kind of, it's very strange time. All right, let's get into the meat of it. Now, we always start here on Collider Ladies Night. What is the movie, the performance, the personal experience, you name it, that first made you say, I have to be an actor? Oh my gosh. Um, obviously Gina Rowlands comes to mind in Woman Under the Influence, Emily Watson in Breaking the Waves. Um I loved Michelle Williams in Breakback Mountain. I thought that was I remember seeing that performance and when she's standing by the sink, I remember being like, wow, that's really cool. And I, I love what she's done in her career. Um, so those are the ones that that come to mind immediately. Excellent choices right there. So I was reading that before you wanted to become an actor, you wanted to be a vet. Yeah. How exactly do you go from having a dream of becoming a vet to an actor? No, it's so weird, especially because all we had were pet rats. I don't really know. 
where that sort of adoration came from. But um, I think it's because I just loved the vet that we would take the rats to, maybe. <laughs> I wanted to be like him. But um, yeah, I did want to be a vet. I thought it would be quite a cool job. I mean, I still do. I still think being like a zoologist or something would be pretty amazing. Um, but I fainted the day I had my work experience. I had my little packed lunch and I went along and a cat was having its gallbladder stones removed and I couldn't, just couldn't take it. So how old were you when you saw that? I mean, I was old enough to, to not pass out. <laughs> I, was probably, I was probably 12 years old or something like that. Oh God, I would be traumatized. Even, even as an adult, I'm the type of person who could watch terrible things happen to human beings in horror movies for hours and hours. But if one, one animal, one pet bites the dust in a horror movie, I'm out. Oh yeah, I know. It, it's often like the cat that does it, isn't it? But it's strange because I've been around a hell of a lot of like prosthetics and things like that. But yeah, the gallbladder just really did one on me. Yeah, even with uh, even with animal deaths in movie, it's it's like my brain tells me like I know the movie magic behind this. Like I know it's not happening, but but also they make. Uh, I remember once there was like a on green room there was a fake dog, and it was so trippy because it literally was like a heavy. It was a heavy fake dog. I mean, and it was to touch it. It was quite extraordinary piece of art. honestly the animal stuff in green room is is probably an example of the best way to do that kind of material because of the complexity and the conflict that comes with it also i'm yeah. obsessed with that movie yeah 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 i, I know i just don't know what fake dog is now so all right moving forward a little bit here i was reading that you scored a place at uh at the courthold but you wound up deferring it so can you kind of walk us through that process a little bit? You know, was it a no-brainer to you when you made that decision that you knew getting industry experience was the right move for you? Or was there kind of that, you know, back and forth, should I or shouldn't I? It was that back and forth, I think until very recently, actually, where I um, I was one of those strange people who actually really liked school. And... Um, the Courtauld was a very particular and is a very particular type of art institute where you can do really wide ranging topics simultaneously. And so it just was something I was really into and it was a very hard decision to make, but I just based on the fact that I'd done a couple indies at that point and I was very happy with that version of life. So I kind of followed that through, but I've never lost, um, it's like pathological need to sort of educate. It's probably like a chip on my shoulder of, of some sorts, you know, where you're like perennially just a student. And it's quite, it's a great way to live life, I, I hope. But um, it wasn't an easy decision because any outside interests always inform like your work and the way you think and all of that. Well, I feel like education doesn't have to, you know, be just in that formal setting and that formal setting alone. So over the years, having not done that, is there any kind of, you know, way of edu educating yourself that you've leaned on that's kind of informed the actor you've become? Yeah, hugely. And I think with cinema particularly, because when I started out, I'd seen, you know, probably like four seminal films that we'd all know, but I hadn't yet gone down that route of, okay, I love um, Terrence Malick's Badlands. So who else was making movies around the same time as Terrence Malick? And 
why was Badlands such, when you find the kind of context, you're able to widen your scope and inform like what kind of movies would you love to be in and who are the directors now, who are the equivalent. And I think all of that takes a long time because when you're younger, just like books at school, you're kind of told who the great writers are. They're like, you should like Jane Austen because you're English. And you're, you know, 15 year old girl. And you're like, I don't like, I don't like Jane Austen. I don't want to, you know, you kind of forge your own path with it. Applying that thinking to some of your earliest credits. It's like, I, I would imagine, you know, you want to show off great range and do a million things. But of all of your earliest movies, was there anyone in particular that kind of made you say like, I hope everyone in the industry sees me in this one in particular, because like this right here shows everyone where, you know, when when everything clicked and when you were able to put into focus for yourself, you know, what you were drawn to in terms of the types of roles that you wanted to get going forward. Yeah, I, I genuinely think that happened. And I did some films in my early 20s that I really loved doing. I loved the experience and I loved the subject matter. So I think about, we made a tiny movie about Tim and Jeff Buckley that I just loved making. It was almost like a blending fusion of like, life and art totally because we are filming like in the East Village in New York and I was falling in love with New York and it all kind of conflated in a beautiful way but then it wasn't till it was probably around the time of doing Green Room actually when I felt a new type of excitement and sense of all right this is this is what I care about and this is a kind of uh project that I objectively can be like, this is a good film and I can defend it. I can talk about it on both sides, like as a movie and as an actor. And I think that really changed a lot for me, um, having made choices that I didn't feel reflected that in the same way. You're really making me regret not bothering to schlep my green room poster upstairs for this interview. <laughs> Instead, I put the Tiff Midnight Madness shirt on because I think oh, that's, that's where I saw it for the first time. <laughs> Yeah, great. That's a great t-shirt. What if we kind of flip that question around a little bit? Was there any early experience on a set that I guess illuminated something that you didn't want to incorporate in your career? And it, you know, it doesn't have to be like throwing anything under the bus, maybe even just like, like a specific genre that didn't click with you or, or a certain technique that you tried and it didn't work out and you kind of knew to push that aside. Yeah, so many times. Um, and I think there's something great about starting out younger as an actor because you sort of, you know, you learn as you do it and you have very informative early on experiences. But I'd also say that you can often um, betray your true sort of sense of taste and self by just working or by perhaps listening to people around you because that's what you're supposed to do, but you haven't yet kind of of your own volition decided what you want to do. And I think that a couple times I was part of a project where no disrespect to the people making the film, um, but it was interesting even on Need for Speed where it was like a car race movie, this beautiful cast, but I knew that it wasn't right. And I knew making the film that it just didn't reflect anything that I really deeply kind of valued. Um, and that's a kind of lesson that you you learn and you're able to say, okay, that's that kind of movie. And there are people out there who love that film, but 
I don't really understand why. <laughs> so it makes more sense for me to, you know, like choose different projects. And um, on the flip side of that, I think I've become a lot less snobby. And I think I was kind of snobby when I was younger. So I'm able now to be a bit more like, oh, that's what that movie is meant to be. And you should go have fun and enjoy it rather than like critique something like that because you can't do it in that way. I get that. With Need for Speed in particular, was it like, I hate kind of, you know, just labeling it something so broad like this, but was it a matter of like the size of the project? Because when I look at your filmography, so much of what excites me is like, there's just so many smaller independent films that are doing these really bold things that, you know, oftentimes those big budget studio projects just can't do. So was it more the scale of that? And if so, is, you know, are those like big budget studio films not you know, in the cards for you, not yet at least, until the perfect thing rolls around. Yeah, I I don't know if it was even to do with the size. I mean, obviously, there's a certain type of subject that will be rewarded with a greater budget because it's like based on a video game, or I think that one was, um, and it's about race cars. And there's something so broad there where you're not going to get the same budget for, I wish you could, but about um, a film about sort of Tim Buckley, you're just not going to get that kind of scale. But I think it was, um, and I wouldn't even put it down to sort of it being a very like masculine topic because I've just been a part of a show with um, a lot of men who were just exquisite souls to be around. So I, I, I you know, I think it was a very specific experience to that project um, and probably the subject matter and the character too and the way that she had been uh written you know was difficult um but I also think when I started out I did a movie called A Solitary Man and then I did this film called A Late Quartet both in New York both when I was about 20 years old and both small you know independent films and I think when you've had that experience and you're among actors like that it's very you, you want to return to it it's like that speaks to kind of what you really care about I think very much get that. We don't have enough time to cover every single incredible actor you've worked with over the course of your career. So in an effort to highlight two people right now, first, can you name someone with a process that aligns with your own? Someone that, you know, when you hit the set, you immediately clicked and we're just automatically in sync. But then can you also name someone who challenged you to adapt and maybe even adapt for the better? Mm. Yeah, that's really cool. Um... I'd have to say someone whose process aligned with my own. Um, gosh, there are a lot of things swinging in front of me right now. I think um, Jesse Eisenberg and I have worked together quite a few times. And we are similar in how seriously we take the work. But then um, I, at this point, it's just, he's such a like pleasure to be around. But I think um, it's very easy to take the work incredibly seriously and have fun. And then also off camera kind of uh, exist in that space together as well. Um, but I'm trying to work out if that's just sort of, if that's just a result of having, having gotten to know someone really well that you're able to like work so comfortably together. Um, because I could say the same about Alia Shawcat 
you know, it's just those people where you can kind of take up the space necessary to do the good work, but also then really enjoy the pockets in between. Um, Makes sense. Yeah, and get loose. And then someone who's challenged me, um, I'm thinking about, I did a play in London, if that's, I know it's not, I know this is like a cinema. Go for it. Storytelling is storytelling. I don't care what the medium is. Cool. Well, yeah, Imelda Staunton, she's, you know, pretty much a hero of mine. She is a hero of mine. Um, And getting to do an Albie play with her was quite extraordinary. And she was just a brilliant artist to be around Um, and very subtly and generously insisted that I, you know, take up space too. And um, it's very easy, I think, in the presence of someone like that to defer and to, uh, but but it's very much a team and um, we all needed to kind of go full pelt with it. Um, So I think she, she wouldn't be aware of that. She'll never know sort of how much I was like, oh, I'm going to pull my socks up all the way over my face today. You know, it was just um, so cool to see that. Just because I think this is probably worth highlighting. What did she do to encourage you to take up space? And, you know, like when you go on to like be a leader and maybe have that influence on someone else, how will you kind of convey that information so you could have the same effect on on another co-star? I think she, what's really important to someone like her is, is having fun. And I keep saying this, but it's, it's um, a comfortable discomfort. So it's sort of, you're confident enough and you take the work seriously enough, of course, but you don't lose that very dangerous edge, which keeps it all so alive. And by the time we were sort of deep into the run of the play um, and we'd opened and all of kind of that was out of the way, Imelda would sort of do things just to make me laugh a little bit on stage in front of the audience. She might do something as catch my eye or maybe mimic something I'd done. And there were just little tricks that she would do where it would just suddenly jolt you out of any tick or pattern or um, it just kept it all very alive and and dangerous. And I think that's so like, it's fun. It's like you're all in on it together and it's very special thing to feel. I love that so much. it's that's just like sparking something else someone just brought up to me i guess this doesn't necessarily uh apply to stage work but when you're when you're working on a film or a show what kind of preparer are you do you like to you know like really go over the scene with great detail and jump on set and kind of have the ability to play because of all the preparation you you had just done or is it more a matter of you know preparing up until the moment and continuing to do that work while you do the performance yeah i think it's somewhere in between. Like I love research. It's my favorite. I love the fact that there's a role that I'm going to do later in the year. And the director's given me just like a mini suitcase of books to read. And that's heaven for me because I'm just like, wow, what a great excuse, you know? And and you can, yeah, be a total hermit and prepare. Um, But then at the same time, ultimately I could read every single one of those books and then be doing a scene with the other actor and the other actor might just, you know, pull a goldfish out their pocket and you can't, you can't prepare for that. You just sort of, you have it in you and then you kind of throw it all away. Um, I think, and just sort of live in the moment because yeah, sort of what I was saying before, you just, um, you don't want to ever, you can never predict whatever's going to happen, right? You have to be sort of present. 
Absolutely. All right. You're bringing up, uh, Jesse gives me a good excuse to bring up Vivarium, which I, Vivarium hit at the beginning of the pandemic. So I feel like this is kind of my excuse when we were in lockdown, but like I got obsessed with that movie and trying to piece together every damn detail of it. So I'm curious when you, when you work on something like that, because Lorcan was kind enough to do an interview with me and I basically just like unloaded all of my like hyper detailed spoiler questions on him. And one of the things he kept emphasizing was that he was really excited that it's the type of movie and the type of uh, story that can be interpreted differently by everyone out there. So when you're tackling material like that, do you need to ask him and Garrett all of your burning questions and really understand it? Or is it also a matter of you interpreting it your own way as well? Yeah, I I really wanted to know where the, like, what the kernel of that idea was, because it's so, even on the page, you know, it was very similar to what was made. Um, and Lorcan would tell me sort of about the ghost estates in Ireland and how that had kind of got his mind whirling with Garrett about this story but ultimately again you have all those discussions prior to making the film and then of course on the first day of filming like the lighting arrangement doesn't work out properly so that's where all the energy has to go or whatever you just you can't ever expect that it's going to be a very um time efficient and kind of capacious day in the sense of having that opportunity to talk through scenes and stuff but in the end it really was just like what Jesse and I were finding, I think. Um, and it's just interesting how it just changes and you just, it becomes about who those characters are. Um, I think we'd spoken so much about the movie and references to the movie. You then have to ignore that because of course, in the moment you're not going to be thinking about the Japanese movie, the woman in the dunes during a scene because you're, um, you're eating a strawberry with your with Jesse or whatever. Like it's um, you can't play the tone, I suppose. That's fair enough. When as I was saying that question, I'm also like, your character doesn't really have a full understanding of exactly what's happening to them either. So that kind of, that kind of makes sense. Uh, that also marks your very first executive producing credit. So I'm wondering how did that come to be, and is there an itch to produce some more? Yeah, that's cool. I always forget that. But you're right. You're right. I should own that more. <laughs> you should. <laughs> yeah I think I would love to um produce more you know it's a really cool thing getting to be a part of some of these projects as an actor but um if there's a sense of having a little more control I think that's really appealing and I think quite a few of my peers feel that way too where um I'm I've been spoiled with the casts I've been uh, a part of but to be even able to have a say in all of that um is really cool and was really cool on vivarium um yeah you're just sort of more involved you're more aware as to what's going on if that's something you want to do i'm rooting for it thank you all right let's get into <laughs> outer range so i guess that like this is only your your second lead role in in a tv show so i i am wondering were you just naturally drawn to the film format early on and i also have to throw in does it create any hesitation when the first time you have a lead role on a tv show it doesn't pan out and it's reduced to one season because like i remember when roadies was coming out like that was a like a huge high profile project that everyone was so excited about and i just have to imagine that it's a bummer when it isn't received as well as it needed to be to get a second season yeah that's a funny one because again I feel like Cameron Crowe is one of he's an angel 
I mean, he's an actual angel. He's one of the kindest, most generous people I've ever met through this industry. He's kind of a freak of nature as well, because he's like still so kind. Like he hasn't been like, you know, crystallized. And um, and he wrote this beautiful character and the pilot was what we shot first. It's so much more unpredictable with TV because with a movie you have the script and that's what you go and shoot. And with television, often you get the pilot and then it could be 12 months later that you get the other episodes. And in that time, a lot of things have changed and people have weighed in and all of that. So I, I felt with Rhodey's like, I loved the, the pilot. It was almost like we made that movie, that story. And then I felt, um, I felt okay that we didn't go past the first season. I felt like the story that Cameron set out to tell was told. And I also question whether ultimately was TV the right medium for that story? You know, perhaps it um, would have made more sense to condense it into uh, a film. That's kind of where my heart sat with that one a little bit. So to compare the two experiences, what was it like? When, actually, like, there's no other way to get at this, but to first ask you, how how was it getting the the scripts for this i guess did you know right out the gate autumn's entire journey throughout the season or was it a matter of like you're kind of experiencing her story like us as an audience is where you're getting episode to episode yeah i was getting episode to episode however um i'd been given a sort of run through of the Bible of the show and the synopsis early on by Brian Watkins and Zev Borrow, who um, show ran the show. But what was different, and I think Rhodey's perhaps prepped me for this, was I really didn't know anything about Rhodey's. It was all a surprise. I had no idea that the character of Kellyanne would have a romantic storyline as well. And, and I had mixed feelings about that at the time. And so with this, I was able to ask those kind of questions up front and be like, listen, you know, I don't want to play this like hippie chick who just is there to sort of be mesmerizing, whatever anyone <laughs> thinks that women are there to do on screen. Um, but um, they were really cool about that. And they were very um, upfront about sort of what her arc would be and how much I would have to do. Um, and I really loved how, uh, even just the early conversations about the character when it came to wardrobe, when it came to things like that, where I felt really heard on my concerns and um, really supported. And so it was really, it was a, a good learning curve to have had a different experience before and then be able to sort of be that thorough, I suppose. Can you give us an example of something, whether it's wardrobe, character detail, line of dialogue, where you were able to step in and say, you know, this doesn't feel quite right. Let's change it and we can see it in the final product. Yeah. A hundred percent. There was a moment where um, I got word that someone um, behind the scenes somewhere, who knows, wanted Autumn to wear sort of like Daisy Duke, like little jean shorts and like a crop top. I was like, hmm, yeah, I guess, uh, I guess that'd be kind of stupid to wear that if you're hiking alone through um, the American West, you know? So it was a back and forth conversation. And in the end, uh, you know, we we won, which is great. Twenty twenty two, you you know, hope, hopefully that's heard. But um, that the fact that those those conversations still occur were very interesting to me, and I think I very much felt a battle because the you know it's a predominantly a male show, 
with some extraordinary women in it, um, with Lily and Tamara and Issa. But there was, um, I think there's often a sense that, oh, because this is a blonde 30-something uh, actress, her role is to be some sort of a siren or um, lean into this kind of, as I said before, mesmerizing sensibility. And actually it's like, oh, I'm an actor playing a part in a show with a bunch of other actors and we're telling a story. And so it's just important to have that um, heard in those kind of instances. Should just be a given, but I'm glad you're speaking up and you're making those changes. Man, this is such a hard show to ask you non-spoiler questions for. I'll throw in one more before we put up the spoiler warning. And I just want to know about working with Josh Brolin, in particular, though, in scenes where, like, he is up in your face, like, full-blown at an 11 yelling at you. Is that, like, the most hugely intimidating thing in the world? Or is is it a matter of, like, you're doing your job and you just kind of got to let it go? Yeah, um... I mean, our scenes are so intense and Josh and I became really close buddies on the show. I adore him. And I think what happens when, because of the nature of the show too, it was like seven months long, right? The shoot, we um, got to know each other so well that you're so relaxed around someone. That's often when your best work can happen. And you can be honest with each other. You know, you can really say stuff and no one takes offense. You just all want the best thing for the project. Um, so in scenes like that, it's it's more just like, yeah, you know, it's like you're, you're hitting the ball back and forth in like a tennis match. Like it's the most invigorating and haunting uh, sensation to really go through that um, as the character. And uh, yeah, I'm kind of, I'm certainly of the like bring it on mentality where um, I love, I love when things just get really like intense and really weird and you you have like a bodily reaction, you know. You are on the right show for that. (laughs) All right, this is it. I'm putting up the spoiler warning. We're going to save this until the entire season has come out so you could talk about everything freely and it will be saved until the appropriate time. So you already said that you kind of had a roadmap for the character early on, but I imagine there are a lot of specific beats and scenes within that that you didn't know about. So was there any particular scene that you learned about just before you shot it that like kind of threw you for a loop where you needed to stop and I guess reprocess what you thought this character was? Yeah, well, there were were kind of on both ends. There are also scenes that disappear in the making of the show. And so, you know, you're kind of, you might map out something and then you hear that actually that episode's been condensed or that scene's moved earlier or later. And so you're kind of constantly recalibrating accordingly. Um, but I had a, in terms of like the the last two episodes, I knew words like unhinged and um, metaphysical is what Larry Trilling, you know, our latter two he directed the last two episodes he would say things like that and so it kind of gears you up to be operating in that zone but I I had no idea um the kind of dune moment when she's talking to herself in the mirror um things like that were a really cool surprise because I felt you know it's it's a sad thing to admit but often you do get sold something and it doesn't work out that way so it was really cool that Brian and Zev had kept their word and they weren't joking, you know, she, if it's the making of a cult leader, if it's the making of sort of a sociopath, like they lay down the land for that to happen. Oh, I have so many follow-up questions. 
I guess first, can you give us an example of something that was cut, but was important to the character in a way that we could, like, even though that scene isn't in the show, we could kind of still feel it like bubbling under the surface of the scenes that did make it into the final product. Yeah, I think there was, um, there was a scene with Tamara and myself that didn't make it in. And I remember being really bummed out about that because I wanted to do a scene with Tamara. Um, but also because our characters juxtaposed, you, it was just so antithetical. And I felt that would have been really interesting um, to have that. But then at the same time, you have to investigate, is that scene really relevant? What's it offering to the story, to each character's arc? Um, and ultimately it can actually do a disservice. It might give away too much um, or something like that. So it leaves open the opportunity to maybe do that another time. That makes sense. I feel like I'm starting to tiptoe into like vivarium-like questions now where it's like I'm trying to explain things away and maybe they shouldn't be. But for you, what was the biggest catalyst for change in Autumn? Because so much happens to her. Was it like the instant she stepped on the property? Was it hearing about what happened to Royal in the hole or... Uh, her losing her medication. There's just, there's so many things. So of everything that happened to her, what sparked the biggest change for you? Well, I think that, you know, there's something very dangerous about um, a personality type like Autumn. So I think curiosity is one of humanity's greatest sort of uh, traits. And it's, you know, um, it's hugely important to me in every walk of life, but I think like anything, it's got an edge to it and someone can become so rapacious with their need to know everything and therefore like own everything, own knowledge. And that's the making of a sociopath. So I think that um, Autumn's relationship with death is also something to consider. And what if you didn't believe in death? What if you um, had nothing left to lose? what kind of a person do you become and how does that affect your sort of um, relationships with other people and just a very warped kind of concept of, um, of life and death and loss and gain and all of that. So I think as the story rumbles along, she just alienates herself more and more. Um, and I think that we've seen people like that in politics and you know like all over who sort of just start to um yeah there's a sociopathic element to it yeah specific question I think this happens in in episode six where like she says with such conviction to I think it's to Royal I'm going to help people at that moment in her mind like what is her plan to help people how does she intend to do that and what effect does she want to have on people around her I think again it's a uh, they say help is kind of a very insidious cousin of control, don't they? That's something that people have spoken about. And I think it probably runs in that family. There's this notion that um, there is some sort of divine choice in you as a person, that you'll be the one to carry out this task. And, um, and you look for the signs and the signs confirm this. And, you know, I think she's deep in that hole. Um, when it comes to this idea of like, I can help people. It's sort of, what is help to you, Autumn? 
to kind yeah. of like flip all this around because I I feel like it can be you know fairly easy to point a finger and say and say she's just a flat out villain. But I was reading an interview that that Brian had given, and you know he was saying that the whole took people where they needed to go. So is there any part of you that thinks that you know some of her roadmap is is I guess being designed for the better, like putting putting her on a better path, even though it descends into darkness to such an extent. You mean in the sense of like the like how it's uh, tied up at the end of the yeah, season? Kind of. It's yeah, yeah. I guess that's kind of what I'm getting at. And it's like you know he's talking about specifically where someone goes when they jump into the hole, but I'm kind of talking about you know like literally everything associated with the hole and how it can nudge people in certain directions. Yeah, well, I think what's cool about it, and I myself don't know um, and didn't know when we were shooting it, which I think is for the best because it means that you're sort of, um, it, it keeps it ambiguous. But I sense that there's enough of a, you know, especially with our show, you can make all kinds of parallels. I think obviously there are a lot of biblical parallels you can make. So sort of what what happens to the fallen person? You know, is there a redemption in order? Or is there sort of a deeper, you know, descent? Um, And I think Autumn has the capacity to kind of probably go either way. Um, And of course, with the reveal at the end of the show and and things like that, all of that, all of that kind of... um, it's such a difficult thing to talk about, isn't it? <laughs> you can say anything you want, though. We are in spoiler territory. Talk freely. Don't worry this about it. Like, Everyone yeah, knows everything at this point if they're watching this video. Okay, okay great. I think by the I so like droned into you, like, don't mention that thing. Um, I, I messed up the other day on a panel because I was like, well, Autumn's so alien because I mean, she's not a alien. I mean, she might be an alien. I don't think she's... <laughs> but um, yeah, there's something uh, unknown about that too, sort of which... Which way she'll go. Okay. And at the very end, does she know her truth? Does she know who she is? Or is that the type of thing that she's going to wake up and realize if she's even told to begin with? I, you know, again, I'll sort of say like, I'm, I'm uncertain, but I suspect that there is such a deep, um, there's a very deep sense of belonging um, that she feels the best parts of her is I don't I don't think she's all bad but um I do feel that there is a real there's an understanding that she's she's in a place she once knew very very well um and I think we could all kind of imagine that if we think back to our whether they were good or bad but our childhoods or or places where we we remember once being happy or whatever that is I think there's a um there's she's very aware of that like cosmic connection this is why I love shows and movies and things that take big swings like this. Cause I feel like for whatever reason, I process more difficult human truths when I see them in the form of a sci-fi Western and just puts things into focus. Yeah, it really does. And and the movies where you see that happen, um, it's almost like you're so much more emotionally invested when the surroundings are so absurdist. It's so true. I must let you go. I cannot congratulate you enough on Outer Range. Seriously, like in the middle of an exceptional ensemble, you shine big time. So huge congratulations on this and everything you've accomplished. We'll have you back on for the next one. So much, so many titles we didn't get to today. Thank you for all your lovely questions. It's such an intelligent, wonderful conversation. So thank you. Hold up. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.